Hi everyone, it's Bud, and welcome to the latest episode of Before the Cheering Started, all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. Gabby Conti likes to say that she peaked in college at her beloved Emerson College in Boston. Don't get me wrong, she did great in college, it's true. But peaked? I don't think so. She's definitely a student of the so-called new media, creating content for blogs and podcasts while employing an old-school drive and can-do spirit. Her personal life and professional life have occasionally merged. Her article and video for Cosmo, I Went on 30 Dates in Three Days, went viral. There's her book, 20 Guys You Date in Your 20s. There's a true crime, true dating podcast called Am I Dating a Serial Killer? I'm noticing a trend here. And now a podcast co-created with the writer Jane Green for Green's Emerald Audio, distributed by Gemini 13, the same company that distributes this podcast. It's called Bad Influencer, a nine-episode podcast that Conti describes as a romantic comedy for your ears. So of all the writing that you've done, is there something in particular about writing for audio? It's interesting because writing for audio was in my blood and I never kind of, I never connected it until just now. Um, I grew up, my dad wrote, produced and directed radio commercials. So as a little kid, I have like some of my earliest memories are going into recording sessions with him and seeing how he put it all together. And when you think radio commercials, you think like that annoying sound. But my dad had has still he has such a gift of like making these commercials. They they would make you cry. He did this whole campaign with Memorial Sloan Kettering, which is the best cancer care anywhere. And the emotion that he would pour into this and how he would use the score and the actors, he had Francis Conroy was the voice that he was who he worked with mostly on these would just make you tear up. So maybe... I never really connected it at a young age that that was something I wanted to do. Um, and I did lean on my dad in writing this. I would get, ask for his his feedback and his opinion because I really respect it. I respect the work that I grew up watching him do. Um, and I I guess my, my writing is always, for me, my writing journey began in theater, doing musical theater. And like that was kind of, I guess, my, and then I, and then directing uh, at, in high school and writing my own one act play. I think that was like the first thing I put on its feet. And, uh, and then I also, and then came journalism, then came writing for the school paper in high school, which then turned into broadcast journalism in college. And then in college is where I learned about writing for television and film at Emerson. So I guess the audio came later, but I think it was always there. Well, before we get to the one act play, which, um, <laughs> you know, some of us in high school can barely tie our own shoelaces. You wrote a one-act play. That's pretty good. Well, actually, um, adapted it. I adapted a one. I'll more on that later. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. We'll, we're, we'll get our lawyers on the case on this. Um, you said he 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 advised you. What kind of advice did he offer? Um, well, a lot in terms of of how to write for audio, which also Jane as well had given me that feedback after she had done Rainbow Girl for Emerald Audio's first production. And it was a lot about like how it's funny because so much of screenwriting is you want to show instead of tell, but with audio, you want to tell, but you don't want to do it in such an obvious way. And so I would sometimes like 
like read a scene out loud to him or something and be like, does this make sense to you? Do you understand where we are and what's going on? And I mean, he's definitely not the audience for Bad Influencer, but oftentimes it would be no. And we kind of like <laughs> work together on how it's because I was like, if my dad can understand this as a boomer who knows nothing about social media, then then our audience will will understand what's going on. Now, this is a question I usually ask near the end of the interview, but it, it seems appropriate right now. Uh, so growing up, going to those, you know, those radio uh, commercial spots and, and being in the studio and other things that you did. And again, we'll get to that background in a sec. Can you see that there are lessons learned along the way growing up and in your early years that you are applying now? I think yes. I think um, both my parents have this have this talent where they're both they're both great at making decisions. They're they're both great producers, and I think that pr a producing skill is something that I think I've always had inside me, but I haven't really like honed it or or like kind of accepted it. And I feel like with this project, be even I started. I came on this project as a writer but I left this project as an executive producer and a co-creator. And I think a lot of that has to deal with what I saw growing up and how to be decisive and to make decisions, but to think for the full big picture of a project and not just thinking about, you know, putting your ego aside and, and really focusing on like, okay, well, what is the final product? How are we going to make that final product something that people can connect with emotionally that they can relate to and at the end of the day that they that they are that they're 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 tuned in they they want they want it for the case of bad influencer they want to binge the series because we released bad influencer as a nine-part series so we really needed to make mm -hmm. sense make sure especially with those first two episodes that you care about this world you are in this world it's not confusing and you want to go to the next one which could be difficult not only with this newer medium for millennials and Gen Z who might might have never heard about a audio fiction podcast before. Um, but it's also mm -hmm. kind of just, yeah, making sure that this was something that people cared about. It's interesting in talking to your co-creator many, many months ago, Jane Green. Great episode. A writer, for I those who don't know, a writer, <laughs> a, a, a terrific writer and born in Great Britain. And, and she comes to this with with a a definite i mean radio drama is was a standard thing probably still is perhaps still is growing up in great britain so the notion of stories audio stories on the radio for her is uh she knew that growing up for you it's more of a, a learned thing i'm curious you say you came out of this as an executive producer sometimes we have jobs where when we start out how shall i put this um we're not so sure what we're doing and, uh, you know, it's kind of like jumping into the pool and learn how to swim. I'm not going to say that about you in this situation, but are there moments during this process of, you know, someone asked me a question. I don't know the answer. I need to find someone who's a friend of mine who might be able to know the answer to this. And then I can come back and, and sound, you know, smarter than I was 10 minutes ago. I think it was less that and it was more problem solving on the fly. Um, so we almost didn't release Bad Influencer because there wasn't, we didn't have an advertiser when we were first starting out. And it was such a gamble because we it, we couldn't really tell people how good the numbers were going to be. We knew we had these influencers attached and we knew that they had followings, but you can't guarantee that they are going to come and listen to the show. And so um, Bad Influencer for a second was almost like on pause indefinitely. 
And so that was kind of something that when I hear a problem, I want to come up with the solution. That's what I learned from my parents at a very young age. And that's also has kind of been like a theme in my career. And so um, I, they were like, yeah, none of the advertisers, like they're oversaturated, the market's bad. And I was like, well, what if we went to an advertiser that isn't advertising on podcasts? And I had a relationship with this dating app called First Rounds on Me from writing about dating. And it was a, an app I truly believed in. I met my husband on dating apps. I really felt that the technology they have on this was revolutionizing dating apps and what they have was so smart, but not a lot of people know about them because they're not a Tinder or whatnot. And so I pitched the um, the co-founder of the, the founder of this app, Bad Influencer, and he was interested. And we ended up, they are our sponsor. They're one of our sponsors. And uh, this connects right back to my dad. I ended up doing, we ended up doing a scene um, in there that's like a sponsored scene where we work this dating app into an already conversation that we had already recorded about the two leads basically talking, dragging how horrible dating apps are. So it was like, like almost like a meant to be match and a meant to be sponsor. So, I mean, I think in that situation, I feel like it was less of me not knowing what to do. I mean, it, like the writing was like the learning how to write to audio was a very big like obstacle. But I feel like once I overcame that, I was pretty confident with it. But it was more about like, okay, as a producer, like what are, how can I do, what can I do to make sure that this podcast people get to hear it, they get to enjoy it. And what can I do if, if a problem comes our way, can I think outside of the box and find out ways to like make this work? It sounds like the, with the, uh, the dating app, it's almost like the audio equivalent of product placement. Exactly. You know? That's what I was trying. I was say, trying to find hey. that word. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, wow. It's like, you know, we, oh, it's perfect. We're you know sponsored by a dating app. Now, b before we get back to, uh, this one act, uh, play, which I seem to be focusing on, but not discussing actually the notion yeah. of dating. I mean, that's a pretty, for me, it's a pretty compelling and fascinating part of your your history and your work history. And you know, twenty guys you date in your twenties, and and you know, a, a podcast about dating and you know, serial killers and so on, uh, and also. Tell me if I got this correct. How many people did you date in one and three, a three day span? Uh, well, it's, and this was yeah. all for work purposes. Yes. Well, it was work and life because I really there there when you're writing about dating, like there's really no difference, right? It's like okay, I'm I'm writing about <laughs> this for a job, but I'm also living it, and and I've always been a hopeless romantic, and I blame that on my musical theater upbringing. But I've always like been that person, and so and I, I guess so. How me, many times? Uh, I'm going to interrupt you here. So how many times have you watched Notting Hill? You know what? I know that's your favorite rom-com, but I don't think it's mine. It's up there. Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, we're going to stop this immediately and this you're going to go over. away for two hours and watch it. Then we'll resume. Okay. I've seen like You've Got Mail. I've seen um, When Harry Met Sally. I've seen like more. I've seen British Jones's Diary. Like I've seen those a lot more, uh, you know. Okay. Mean you're you're allowed to stay. Yeah. Yeah. I've <laughs> I just wrote a rom-com. You're allowed to stay. And also Bad Influencer is a rom-com. So I, I came very sure. well prepared. I did all my market, my, all my research before I started writing. Uh, when, when you're going on all these dates, both for your social life and for work, uh, is the person you're dating aware that, you know, we're completely on the record here, so to speak? Sure. 
Um, well, so first, so it was interesting because my book, 20 Guys You Date in Your 20s, was written based on my roughly 10,000 hours worth of dates I went on in my 20s. And that comes from being someone who was a serial monogamous through college. And then when I, I had my first relationship, when I moved out here in LA and that crashed and burned and dating apps came out. So I was like an early adopter of dating apps. And I estimated, yeah, roughly went on, you know, like Malcolm Gladwell says, I love, I roughly had 10,000 hours. I'm, I'm probably an expert in this case. So that was that book. And, and that was, and when that book came out, um, when it was about to come out, I, I wrote that book in a relationship thinking I was going to end up with the person I was dating. The last chapter is called The Guy Who's Your Person. We broke up as I was writing the book. So I changed it to more Guy Who's Your Person, question mark. And um, and at that time, I was nursing a heartbreak, but also trying to promote a book. But this, the, but the, the heartbreak thing was kind of a, a separate, I was focused on the heartbreak and I was trying to get back out there and trying to date. And that's how 30 Dates in Three Days came about which I had pitched to my editor at Cosmo as 30 dates in 30 days because I was going on a lot of dates anyway. And so I thought, well, let's see if there's a way that we can like write about this. And she said, no, that's been done. We have to do 30 dates in three days. And so with that. <laughs> your initial response when, when your editor says that is? Well, like I said earlier, with there's a problem, there's a solution. So yes, you can go on 10 dates a day for three days and that's 30 dates in three days. So I, I was already on all the dating apps, but I was now more determined to, instead of just endlessly chat and, and never meet in person, I was now determined to try to meet in person with these, with these men. And then that also is where you asked about, about, did they know I was doing that? That conversation came up where I asked my editor about it. And my editor's advice was to not let them know what was going on, not to try to just like deceive them, but because like my mission in this was to really find a connection, to really get out of my heartbreak and to get back out there. So she said, if you are looking for a genuine connection and you tell people that you're doing this for an article, you're not going to get a genuine read on them. So, um, but by the time I was, uh, it was the Wednesday before the Friday, I was supposed to start to go on the dates. I only had 15 dates. And so I asked her if I could crowdsource the other 15. So half of them knew about, the, about it. The other half didn't, but I did promise myself, I said to myself, you know what, I'm not going to tell them on the date, but if any of them, I'm not going to reach out to any of these guys after the date, but if any of them reach out to me after the date, I'm going to tell them about the article and I'm going to, to you know, tell them, hey, look, my, I, I wrote an article about it, but I was myself. I wasn't like trying to, you know, manipulate you on the date. This is who I am. Um, and if you want to go on a second date, I'd be, I'd be, I'd love to, but just, I want, I want, I can't, I don't want to continue this relationship without, you know, being honest with you. Two things, two, two things that intrigued me. One, uh, did you get all the names right? Mm -hmm. Because I had a spreadsheet. That, wow. That's <laughs> well, there's nothing more rom-com than a spreadsheet. <laughs> the spreadsheet was also for my safety. I shared it with my neighbor slash best friend, which also feels very rom-com, but was really my life. And so she had all the guys' pictures and names and where we were going like to for our dates. And also she was tracking my location. So if I didn't respond, she would, you know, she was on alert to make sure I was okay. Did you ever have to pull out like a little piece of paper? Like, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just going to go to the ladies room for a second. Like, oh, right, William. This is William. William. Okay. <laughs> it was more on my way to the date. I would be I would be checking my my notes before the date. Um, and if they went to the bathroom, maybe I would I would 
check them again. But these dates were quick. They were like an hour. I couldn't really be on a date for more than an hour because of my schedule. So, <laughs> uh, And the second thing is when you're going through this, is there the notion of, wow, this is, this is a bit unusual? Or, you know, the famous line from the great Nora Ephron, I believe, I believe the line is, and I may be paraphrasing here, is, you know, it's all material. Um, I don't know. It was, you mean, while I was on the dates, if I was thinking, is it all material? Well, or was just I in thinking? general, the preparing for it and just, is, is it, is it, you have a, a presence of mind to think, well, the, the, you know, like the old Springsteen song line, someday I'll, we'll look back on this and it will all seem funny. Um, or is there, is there any kind of notion of, am, am I really doing this? I think... I, I feel like while while I was doing it, um, I, I yes, I, I think that was always my mentality before going on dates was like, okay, best case scenario, you have a great connection and you date. Worst case scenario, it's a horrible date, but you have something to laugh about later, right? Like that's always kind of been my mindset with dating. So I still had that mindset when I was going on these dates. Um, and there was a lot to laugh about, but there were also a lot of I, a lot of the dates were upset about the about about me writing about this, even though names and details were changed. And then um, America in general, when I went viral for this, a lot of people were very upset that I had the audacity to go on as many dates as I did. Hmm. Let's go back to uh, growing up, and okay. well, let's get right to it. This. So, what was the what was the play that you wrote? So I, I I adapted J.D. Salinger's Nine Stories. I don't look like I can't believe I did that. J.D. Salinger's Nine Stories. I adapted. Um, uh, oh my God! It's uh, just before the war with the Eskimos. And how old are you at this point? What grade are you in? I am a senior in high school. Okay, and you you write your own your own I, play like, based, on, based on the so story? I, so I took it. Yeah. So I took the short story and I, I, you know, I adapted the the characters and I was just, I loved how it took place in like the fifties. And I, I made sure we all had the right costumes. And I had, I think I, I think I used the Beatles nowhere man was like the song that I played. I just, I thought it was, I really thought this was like peak artist. Um, uh, and, and no one else was doing this. Uh, everyone else was doing like actual one act plays that were written um uh, <laughs> no one was adapting salinger uh but i i loved it i had such a great experience um and i i do want to get do more directing i had such a great experience directing the cast uh who were so into it and they they really like really they they were like we were like the five weirdos that were just like you know doing this play that we just like so believed in um, and, and it was fun. I mean, it was a one act play festival. I went, I went to Staples high school in Westport, Connecticut. Um, we have Staples players, which is a really well-known theater group, uh, that I was honored to be a part of. And my senior year is where I really got into directing. I directed that. And then I also directed, uh, Jake's women. Uh, that was like a, a black box play that we did. And I put that together and, and I set, I decided I wanted to set that in the eighties because that's when the movie came out. Um, and, and I really, I really enjoyed doing both of those things. So I think that was kind of like my intro to, to screenwriting in a way, even though it was directing and adapting. Um, but that's kind of where mm -hmm. I started to really, to really love to write and create. Well, if you got J.D. Salinger and Nowhere Man, you're, you're onto well, something. I mean, in there. high that's school, you don't great. have to get the rights for any of those things. <laughs> well, that's okay. That's all right. But not everybody would yeah, yeah. even know enough to reach out to or find those influences. 
Um, any any reflections or any any uh, thought on where the love of being on the stage or being involved in performing arts where did that come from? Definitely my mom. My mom had I remember my some of my earliest childhood memories. Well, I grew up in I was born in New York and raised in Connecticut. So um, growing up in New York City, I remember like some of my earliest childhood memories is going to see a Broadway play. I think before I saw a movie. And I remember the first time I saw a movie was The Little Mermaid, and I was excited to meet the cast after, like you could do at a Broadway play. And I, <laughs> my parents had to explain to me that's not how it works. Um, but in my mother, no, sweetie, my parents, there's a sweetie, there's there's no stage door here. Sorry, sorry, Gabby, there's no stage door. But uh, my mother and my grandmother um, loved loved Broadway, um, and I would watch so much of like I, we had like I, some of my earliest childhood memories are watching like the play versions of Peter Pan, uh, of Carousel, which is way too mature for a child to watch, um, of The Sound of Music. So I grew up with all like Rodgers and Hammerstein and and those types of musicals and just really, really loved them at a young age. And uh, when I was six years old, I was in my first, we, we were living in Westport at this time. I was in my first play at six years old. It was Oliver. I was an orphan, uh, loved every minute of it and had always been a theater kid, um, both at school. And then also I went to this great summer camp called Camp Vega and we had a wonderful theater program there. And I was in every single play I could possibly be in. Um, but what's interesting is I would get the leads at theater and I would get the leads at like the extracurricular theater group I did called MTC in Westport. But at in high school and in middle school, I was always like double cast in the ensemble. So. <laughs> hmm. So in other words, you got both the glamour and the difficulties of the business at an, from an early age. From an early age and also from seeing my dad going to casting sessions with him as a kid and seeing that there are like hundreds of actors that are all coming in to book this 30 second spot and only one of them is going to get it. It's like learning about casting at such a young age kind of took deterred me from acting, even though that was always a passion of mine and kind of made me focus more on writing, which was something that also just came very naturally to me and I think was part of my love of theater. So understanding that you learned that lesson, maybe not specifically spoken to you, maybe said or unsaid in terms of the vagaries of this business and how difficult it can be watching your father go to a audition with 30 others. Uh, well, once he was you... directing, so they were, he was my dad wasn't auditioning. He was directing. Oh, okay. Was, Thank you for both. the clarification. That's good. Yeah. So I was, I was watching him as a director go through a casting session where there was like, I think like, felt like a hundred actors all, all auditioning for this 30-second uh, ad spot that he was directing. So perhaps that's even more of a lesson, like, hey, be that guy. Be the director, right. maybe, as opposed to be the one of 100. Yes. Interesting. So, yes. But is there any, uh, from your folks, as you're off at college at Emerson uh, in Boston, and then your early years in the business, going out to Los Angeles, or even before that move, is there any conversation with your folks about, uh, you know, you know that this business is unorthodox, can be really difficult. Do you have a plan B? Is, is that conversation held or Oh, or, or oh my unsaid? goodness. Many, many conversations have ha had had on that. Um, so at, at Emerson, I, I, I think I did want to go for theater initially, but it's very competitive to get into Emerson for theater. 
And, uh, and, and also I didn't have a lot to show for it because the roles I was getting in high school were not, you know, I wasn't the star of them. So why would someone who wasn't a star of their musical in high school go on to like, go be study acting at Emerson? Um, but writing was always something I loved and writing for, uh, and writing for our school newspaper was something I loved to do so much. And so I, I got into Emerson and I also did our morning news at, at Staples. I, I, I did our morning like announcements, uh, and so because of that, I went to Emerson for writing for – so I went to Emerson for broadcast journalism. Uh, and my parents were pretty supportive of that while I was in college because I did very well. I, I, I just had this natural knack for it. I got – cast in our morning show Good Morning Emerson um I had I got picked my sophomore year to go cover the Oscars with Emerson um and I later did that in my senior year we covered the Emmys so I did very well at at hosting and at reporting for some reason it was I guess it was just like in me I I don't I don't maybe it came from the theater background and acting or uh, but it was just something I was just, and storytelling, but it was just something that I was just very good at. Um, and so I kind of had this 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 experience at Emerson where I was like famous <laughs> at college, uh, where I was doing really well. And and I, but I peaked. I like I joke that I peaked in college. A lot of people peak in high school. I felt like I kind of peaked in college uh, because also my sophomore year. I, uh, Kevin Bright, who's the executive producer of Friends, came to Emerson to start the Kevin Bright workshop and literally scouted me to be in his first pilot ever. So I got to basically create a show with him uh, when I was a sophomore and also got to host that show. And then I got cast in another show he was doing. And then by my junior year, I was in the writer's room for two shows. And by my senior year, I was the head writer for a pilot that I was working with with him at college through the Kevin Bright workshop. And so my parents were so supportive of all of that while I was in college because I was doing really well and I was excelling in school. And I think they thought, and so did I, that those skills would just translate. Like I would graduate college and I would have a job handed to me. But I graduated in 2009, you know, coming off of the recession. And the only jobs that were available were really internships or PA jobs and assistant jobs, which of course makes sense. What you do, no one cares what you do in college. Like they think it's cute and everything, but no one really cares. So I had to really, I think once I was in LA and the first like few years of like being a production assistant or a executive assistant and doing that job, but then also like pursuing stand-up and sketch comedy and writing pilots on my own and writing the early drafts of 20 guys, there was some times where my parents would be like, are you sure you want to be doing this? And I think they wished that I would have a job that was more stable, that I was at a, a actual, you know, a job with benefits and I was on salary as opposed to going from production to production, show to show. Um, my parents, like I think at one point really wanted me to, to be more in like the agency side of things or to work in development, which was, I always kind of felt the, the I, my heart was always in creating though. It wasn't, it wasn't from that side of the business, but it took a while to get to where I am today because of that. So during those early years in Los Angeles, understanding what your parents were saying to you with, even with all their support, um, are there times where you're working other jobs and moments when you yourself are wondering, am I going to stick this out? Or is the feeling like, Hey, I'm in LA. This is great. I have contacts through Emerson. I'm doing some things. I'm working on some things. We're going to make this happen. 
I think it was a little bit of both. I, I had my parents um, like emotional support, but not financial support. And there were times where I was working. Uh, I remember one year I had, I was working every day. I was working uh, Monday through Friday for Comedy Central on various shows as an as a talent coordinator, which is those those days are insane. They're not nine to fives. They're like long, you know, you're on your feet all day. You're running around. You're you're working on a show. So I'd be doing that, and then um, on the weekends I had to work retail because I I to, in order to make uh to make rent, and I did that for like a couple of years, and and then and then in addition to those two jobs, also doing the stuff on the side, like also doing uh, I was in a sketch group and working on that I was writing scripts constantly I was just tr I was blog blogging I started to get into blogging so I feel like I was always doing a lot and it was hard and there were days that I wanted to give up but I I just didn't I just I just kept doing it and I kept finding out ways to make things happen and ways to to do it um and and it was it was a lot like my 20s were tough that's that's probably why I made a lot of bad dating decisions <laughs> like it's just it was really, really difficult. In the 12 seconds that I know you, one of the things that really comes to the fore is your perseverance. I mean, talking about, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm trying this. I'm trying this. I'm going to do this. And you, you sound like a doer for want of a better term. And I'm curious, A, if you see yourself that way and B, again, is there uh, an early uh, influence on you from a family member or a mentor or a teacher where you can say, this is where that comes from. I think, yes, a lot of pivoting in my career, but it kind of pivoting in a circle, like it's still coming, still doing what is part of the initial goal and dream, but but being able to adapt like that has always been something. And I, I do feel like I'm a doer. Thank you for that. I do. I mean, like I had no business writing a book. Like no one asked me to write a book. Like I just wanted to write a book and I figured out how to write a book and I got a book published. And every time I tell people that, they're just confused. And they're like, what, what do you mean? How did how did you write a book? I just like, I just, I don't know. I looked up how to write a book proposal. I, I took out every dating book I could from the West Hollywood library and I saw what was missing in the market and what I wanted a book to be. And I wrote a book for my 20 one-year-old self crying over her first heartbreak. Like that's who I wrote the book for and people connected to it. And I still get DMs from people all over the world telling me like, thank you for writing this book. So like, I guess I, I'm happy I did it. Like, but yeah, no, I, I, I guess I've always been a doer, but I guess a lot of that comes from my mother. My mother um, had a, a really fascinating career. My mom was a, like my mom grew up in Brooklyn no connections to the industry whatsoever. Um, she decided she wanted to be a flight attendant when she was in her 20s, became a flight attendant during a time where every flight attendant had blonde hair and blue eyes and was super tall and looked like a model. My mom is five, barely five foot one, Italian, dark hair. And somehow she became a flight attendant and lived this glamorous life as a flight attendant. And then after she was a flight attendant, she was like, you know what? I think I want to be a producer and became a producer and was producing commercials for Coca-Cola and all these brands. I don't know how, but she just like she just had such a can-do attitude, like anything was possible. And she met my dad. They were both working at DDB and that's how they met each other. And like, you know, so it's just, I think that comes from her. And then, you know, the, the sad part of it is when I was six years old, my mom was diagnosed with cancer and has been fighting cancer. I mean, she, she got 
cured or they were able to remove the cancer from her when I was about nine years old. Um, but she's always been struggling with her health, mental and physical. But I, but I grew up watching this woman who was at sometimes was so weak and was told, you know, that she couldn't make it just find ways to reinvent herself and keep pushing through. My mom had a whole other career post-cancer when I was in college where she was working with a woman helping her get houses to stage houses. She had no business or experience doing that, but my mother is just someone who just like makes convinces you that she knows what she's doing and then does it. Like I I when people tell me what imposter syndrome is, I don't think that's anything. I don't think my mother has ever experienced that. But I think growing up around someone like that became had me become someone who always thought everything was possible. And my mother has always believed in me and has believed in my writing and believed in my career and has always been, you know, pushing me to to do the thing. She's the reason I moved out to Los Angeles. If it was up for my dad, I would still be in Connecticut. She really felt, she agreed with me that those were your, those were all of your connections are. You know people there. You seem really happy when you're in LA. Like that is where you're meant to be. And I'm still here. So she was right. <laughs> Sounds like there was either a subtle or not so subtle uh, lesson learned by you of watching her both professionally and her cancer battle, a, a lesson of seize the day. Very much so. Also love the musical Newsies, but yes, very much seize the day. And um, and and with my and also how we dealt with that drama. Um, my humor, comedy, which connects back to bad influencer and all my work. There's this there's this theme of comedy, and that's because that's how we dealt with tragedy. I'll I'll never forget my dad telling me when I was six years old that my mom had cancer. The way he said it is, I have some good news and I have some bad news. The bad news is your mom has cancer. The good news that she'll be spending all this time in the hospital so we could finally get that monkey, you know, because I was the 90s and I really wanted a pet monkey. So, and that, I mean, we we joked for survival and I, I think I still, to this day, that is my mentality, but I think the humor gets you through the times where you doubt yourself, where you don't think you can do it. You kind of joke about it and then next thing you know, you're, you're doing it. Laughter through the tears. Exactly. Laughter through the tears. Uh, is there a moment talking about those early years in Los Angeles and you're doing 12 different things and trying out things? Can you point to a particular moment when you were able to exhale? It's going yes. to work out, or at least this thing is going to work out. And uh, I'm seeing some of the fruits of my labors. So um, it wasn't until I got the job to be the host and the writer of the Elite Daily Show, which won't really make sense. <laughs> this thing that felt like a bigger deal than it really was, but it was a pretty big deal. So uh, Verizon had this app called Go90 where they had all of these shows. So every, like almost every network had a show on Go90 at one moment. It was kind of like Quibi before Quibi and it was on your phone uh, and they called it Go90 because you had to flip the phone horizontal to watch the content, uh, which is funny because now we watch all of our content vertically. Um, but it was this was an, an example of like right place, right time, where someone I I forget I was it actually I was somewhere and and someone told like I, a friend I knew from Comedy Central, someone I had worked with at Comedy Central was telling me that they knew someone who was at Elite Daily and Elite Daily was looking for contributing writers. And now I had spent the last five years of my life contributing for Pop Sugar, 
for Hello Giggles, for like any blog that would have me. I was writing about dating and all that stuff. And so I pitched this person to write for Elite Daily and they hired me to like be a contributing writer, which was amazing. And I think it was the editor that was like, oh, hey, by the way, Elite Daily is looking for hosts for the show, the Elite Daily show. And I went, went into that audition and it was like I was the exact right person for the job because they were looking for someone who had experience in sketch comedy, but also had experience interviewing. So it was literally like all of the millions of things that I had been doing in Los Angeles for the past 10 years that most people would be like, that makes no sense. I got to do all of that at this job. And, it, and I really felt that first year of that job, I really felt like I got to exhale because it felt like all of that hard work that I had been doing was like finally paying off and I finally had a job that was recognizing that and a literal dream job where I would go to work every day and I would host a show or write the next show or collab on the next one. And I, I really was using, I was using my producer brain too because I was casting a lot of the people that we'd have on the show for interviews and segments and I was coming up with all this stuff. And it was, it was a great, it was a great experience until, until it wasn't because like most apps, they die and uh, <laughs> and then and then that was the panic of what am I doing now and then that was when I realized I had to publish my book because I was about to turn 30 and I was soon to be out of a job uh, but there's not a lot of money in publishing so maybe I should have rethought that <laughs> well you've done uh, am I dating a serial killer that podcast and mm -hmm. bad influencer now yeah uh, and so uh, as we finish up any truth to the rumor that in your next podcast there may be a role for a middle-aged, not so, oh, maybe past middle-aged broadcast journalist from upstate New York who has his own podcast. Now, asking I, for a friend. Yeah, of course. It's so funny. I, I also had a podcast called Asking for a Friend once with my therapist, the angry therapist. <laughs> I've had, the with, angry well, therapist. Honest, I've had, I've had so many podcasts. Like that's the other thing with how Bad Influencer was like the perfect thing. Like I've had dating podcasts back in like 2010s where like no, not before everyone had a podcast. I was doing this. You so had to tell like, people how to spell it. Yeah, exactly. Like what's up where people were like, what's a podcast? Where can you listen to it? Like, so it, it was so amazing that Bad Influencer happened at the time it happened. And to answer your question, Bud, yes, of course, there's always a role for you. We could find a way to work you in there, I'm sure, for our next one. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, it, I, I, it was. I'm, I'm happy to have done both those things. And actually, Am I Dating a Serial Killer is not fiction like Bad Influencer. Um, it's a show where people right. tell me their uh, possible, their true, possibly criminal dating stories, and then we get a, like an FBI expert or someone to weigh in about how criminal that that experience was, and also to give people dating advice. And for me, I connected with that project because when I was going on 30 dates in three days, I had friends joke to me, well, if you go missing, we'll have 30 suspects. And that unfortunately is a reality. <laughs> it's unfortunately a reality. And these are your friends. Dating. These are your these friends are talking. Friends. These are my friends. But unfortunately, that's yeah. the reality of dating, especially with online dating, that's very dangerous and that there's some things that we should be doing. Yeah. So I was really happy to do that yeah. project with XG Productions. Um, that whole first season is on audible hopefully there's a next season we don't know yet but uh and then and then to come to bad influencer was just a dream truly well congratulations on it uh, thank you it's uh, you should be proud and uh again when we think about like the places where we've been and the building blocks and the shoulders we stand on when i now if i hear of some kid who's a senior in high school who's doing something creative and i said yeah, did you write a play based on uh, J.D. Salinger and the Beatles song Nowhere Man? You didn't? Come on. Come back and talk to me when you've done that, okay? <laughs>
I can't believe they let me do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what? It sounds like from the little I know you that you were, you know, effusive in your uh, enthusiasm for it. And you did the hard work and you thought it out and you persevered. And I'm sure they had seen you in action and they trusted you. Yeah, they let and, me do it. And what, what, well, why not? Why not try new stuff as opposed to, you know, bring back old stuff? So, yeah. Anyway, exactly. this has been a pleasure, Gabby. So much fun. Thank you so much for having me. Gabby Conti. Her new nine episode podcast, Bad Influencer, a rom com for the ears is available wherever you get your podcasts. And for information on all of Gabby's numerous projects, you can go to her website, gabbyconti.com. That's G-A-B-I-C-O-N-T-I dot com. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin. And this is Before the Cheering Start. Thanks for joining us on the journey.